Now, we have on this program talked to some, some might say somewhat relentlessly, about the, the unignorable trend towards a, a stultifying cultural uniformity, the greyish interiors, minimalist fonts, the muted tones and nondescript sartorial choices of the very wealthy and their normcore minions, uh, barata-infested restaurant menus, the, the list is... Sadly endless. Uh, so when we happened upon Kyle Chaker's latest book, Filter World, How Algorithms Flattened Culture, well, ha, fellow traveller, we immediately invited him uh, to explain to us what is going on and why every single aspect of so-called cultural life feels like some kind of interconnected grey ubiquity. Uh, he's a staff writer at The New Yorker uh, and a meticulous documenter of these distressing, yet tastefully austere, symptoms of civilizational decline. He joins us now. Kyle, welcome. Thank you for having me. That was a great description. <laughs> <laughs> Sad times in which we live. <laughs> can, can we start in, in a particular place? And it's probably a good place to begin a conversation in, in coffee shops. Uh, back in the day, in, in the mid-noughts, you were, you were searching somewhat obsessively uh, with the phrase hipster coffee shop. What did you discover? Yeah, wherever I went, kind of any country I landed in as a freelance journalist, I would put in that phrase, hipster coffee shop, into <laughs> Yelp or Google Maps. And I would always find this particular kind of cafe, which I think will be very recognizable to anyone who's gotten a coffee lately. Uh, it has white subway tile on the walls. It has reclaimed wood furniture. It has hanging Edison bulb lamps. You know, it serves up a nice <laughs> flat white and avocado <laughs> toast. I mean, we, we have Australia to blame in some ways for this for this international archetype. But, but I really found that you could discover it anywhere. What does that mean? What is what is that that and, and yes, we instantly as you describe that, we we know of several places probably within the five minute walk <laughs> that qualify. Mm -hmm. What what does that signify? I mean, to me, it started to signify this, uh, as someone put it to me, a harmonization of tastes that was happening all around the world. So suddenly, rather than having a really geographically specific set of aesthetics or taste that was in your coffee shop, we were all kind of conforming to this ideal generic coffee shop that served the same dishes, that had the same furniture, that looked kind of the same everywhere. And I think it symbolizes the globalization of culture in, in the era of social media and just how much all of our preferences are being shaped and our kind of aesthetics are being shaped by uh, social media like Instagram. I understand that, you know, the, 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 the digital world flattens somewhat that, uh, yes, we are, we are instantly interconnected and sharing our preferences. I wonder why that all, however, leads us into a particular direction. Why, why does that not let us rejoice in our multiplicity? Why does it, in, in fact, <laughs> turn to our uniformity? Well, uh, you know, humanity is a kind of sheep herd <laughs> in a way. Like, I think if you think of... If you think of these platforms like Facebook or Instagram or TikTok as, you know, big fenced off areas that we're all kind of milling around in, <laughs> and then we're all pushed in particular directions by the feed, like the feed of content that exists on these platforms. 
And I think why they concentrate us into particular subjects and kind of drive us towards sameness is that the content that gets promoted that succeeds in these spaces is the stuff that engages the most people. Hmm. It's like the lowest common denominator. It's the stuff that's the least offensive to the highest number of people, whether that's a minimalist interior coffee shop or the kind of like elevator lo-fi chill beat Spotify music that, that has become more popular lately. Yeah, well, it's the tyranny of the least offensive, as you, as you say. And once you once you yeah. factor that in, of course, of course, it's it's going to lead us towards towards greatness. <laughs> yes, it's very boring. Like, I mean, your your citation of burrata on every restaurant menu is just a perfect example. It's like it's a dish that we've all come to expect. And at one point it was, it had some novelty and interest, like mm. what will they put on the burrata? <laughs> what, what will it be served with? <laughs> but now it's just fundamentally the burrata is like this kind of, you know, more or less tasteless, bland, milky blob <laughs> that, that you can now have wherever you land. It is, it is grainous in a surprising cheesy form. It's, <laughs> <laughs> Take us to another example, the, the Instagram wall. What is that? This was another kind of 2010s era archetype. Uh, it was a wall, usually outside, often in an industrial part of a city. Like I first noticed them in, in Bushwick in Brooklyn. And it usually, it was painted, it was kind of like street art or graffiti, but rather than just being a mural, it had a spot for someone to pose <laughs> in it. So the the standard one was a pair of angel wings that kind of stretch outward uh, in the center of a wall. And you are meant to go in front of it, stretch your arms upward and have your friend take a photo of you in front of the wall. And then you post that photo <laughs> on Instagram. Yes. And so the, the Instagram wall is a kind of physical prompt to make content for the internet. It's it's essentially begging you to, to post it online, to share it, to send it to your friends as proof that you were in a particular place. And I think that mechanic has become so universal. Like you see it in restaurants now. You see it in Instagram museums, like the Museum of Ice Cream. There's so many opportunities to just create content for the internet, and that seems to be the end point of the experience. And once upon a time, though, I mean, at the beginning of all these things, there was this wall which was discovered quite by accident that just happened to be a wall, uh, and, and that was nice, <laughs> and people took pictures of it. Now, however, of course, as you, as you suggest, we create those experiences with the expectation of people's arrival with their, their cameras. It, it, there is no accident about it. There is no sense of, of, of individualism about it or, or serendipity. <laughs> uh, right. I mean, it, it turns you, the viewer, into just a, another participant who does the same thing and takes the same photo. Like, at least with a painting or a mural, you know, you might look at it and have your own experience and think your own thoughts about it. But in the Instagram wall case, you're just performing the same action as everyone else. And then if you look, I mean, often these Instagram walls had a hashtag on them. So you would <laughs> post the photo and then tag tag it. So that would unify your photo with everyone else's photo of this wall. And you could go on the hashtag and just see an endless litany of the same photo over and over and over again with different people. And that's, I mean, 
what could be more flattening than that? Well, you you quote Voltaire on this this idea. Um, in order to have taste, it's not enough to see and to know what is beautiful in a given work. One must feel beauty and be moved by it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like I think so much of social media and so many phenomena like the Instagram walls. It's not about actually feeling something. It's not about, Mm. you know, being moved by a work of art or thinking about how it makes you feel. It's instead just about generating that next piece of content. You take the photo, you take a selfie, you post it online, and that's the end of it. All that we've discussed thus far has uh, an element of, of individual agency, in it, you know, people making choices. Now, the other part of this, and this is perhaps where this conversation becomes slightly more distressing, and it's the key word in the title of your new book, is the introduction of the algorithm into the choices that are presented to us. I mean, mm-hmm. talk us through that and the way in which algorithms drive this, um, well... <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say artistic. That's that's not the word. This this Instagrammable landscape. This this style place in which we live. It, it's it's uh-huh. algorithmic. <laughs> yeah. Well, the that word algorithmic has become like used more and more. I've I've noticed it more and more, and it's often used as an insult. <laughs> it's like this restaurant is algorithmic. This song is algorithmic. Even like a book might might seem algorithmic. And I think people have started noticing that quality of something being too determined by, you know, digital technology or the equations of these platforms. Um, And I think what we're coming up against at this point uh, is just the fact that we're completely surrounded by algorithmic filters that shape so many of our experiences online and off. Like that, that's why I titled the book Filter Worlds because it just seemed to me that we were surrounded by these things and immersed in them. And it was almost a kind of scrim or barrier that we couldn't see through that was warping everything around us. Because whenever you go on Netflix to watch a movie, whenever you look at your TikTok for you feed, Often when you open your email account, there are these algorithmic equations that have decided what you are most likely to find interesting. So we're just constantly being fed and suggested this stuff. Extraordinary that it should... I mean, I kind of get it with music or film or TV, but that it should begin to influence other aspects of our our sort of stylized environment in in restaurants, Mm -hmm. in... In, in the interiors in which we inhabit, that these things in turn be- start to become machine-generated? Mm-hmm. I mean, once once algorithmic platforms start influencing something, you kind of can't escape them <laughs> because if, you know, if the Spotify algorithm is influencing what music people listen to, then record executives are going to follow that trend. If Instagram aesthetics mm-hmm. are shaping how restaurants are decorated then you know every restaurant is going to kind of chase those trends in order to cultivate that that audience and so even if you are not online even if you're not using these apps you're still kind of existing in in the world that has been shaped around these forces i think do we keep the illusion of choice I think the the tech platforms like Facebook or TikTok would love for us to keep feeling like we're making all the choices, that these are truly personalized feeds of content, and we should just sit back and appreciate 
all of the decisions that have been made for us, uh, you know, because they're catering to our desires. But I hope that we can realize that these decisions are not necessarily made in our best interest. They're not serving our desire for art or culture necessarily. They're just being made to create more advertising opportunities on on Instagram or Facebook. And yet, in a way, there's a a democratizing effect here, isn't there? I mean, let's take the restaurant, for example. Once upon a time, what was good in a restaurant would have been determined by one or two people writing their review in the New York Times or wherever it appeared. The, the, The taste makers were a very defined and hierarchical group. That's been subverted, I mean, in a couple of stages, I guess, once first through, um, you know, multiple voices in, in, in internet and social media and then after that through <laughs> the machine voices of the algorithm. Yeah. But it yeah. still is it not, uh, there's, there's an element of, of liberation in that? For sure. I I think there is this great effect of the internet that lowers the barrier to entry for all sorts of things. Like you it's great that you can put your video on YouTube or anyone can upload their music on Spotify. And I, I never want to say the internet is all bad. <laughs> like there's so much great stuff out there. But I feel like right now the balance has just tipped too far in favor of algorithmic recommendations as the gatekeeper. So say right now, I mean, maybe 80% of my interactions online are are dictated by one of these equations. And then 20% is a human gatekeeper or tastemaker who shows me something. I think it would be healthier if we could balance that out a little more and balance like the democratic accessibility with some more of the human element and the human connection that comes when someone recommends something to you. And that doesn't have to be mm-hmm. a professional critic. It doesn't have to be like a newspaper restaurant commentator. It could just be one of your friends. <laughs> it's just getting off of those platforms and, and talking to each other more. There's a bit of a paradox in it too, isn't there? That that the the uniformity and the unexceptional nature of so much of the taste territory we inhabit, whether that be in restaurants or or, or interiors and so forth, um, set against the the actual reality of the world that surrounds all of that, which which is becoming mm-hmm. increasingly. Uh, fevered and uncertain. <laughs> I, I wonder it's if true. there's a relationship between those two things. Oh man, yeah. I mean, I think the in some ways the blandness and the numbing quality of a lot of culture could be a reaction to the utter chaos that that is happening. Otherwise, I mean, I there's this YouTube channel uh, called Lo-Fi Chill Hip Hop Beats to Study Slash Relax to, and it's just twenty four seven chill, you know, semi electronic, semi acoustic music, and it's. It makes no difference who wrote the music. It you never know what song, like when one song ends and when another starts. But it's very it's soothing. Just there. <laughs> You're right. It's just there. And I there's a real 
need for that. You know, I find myself listening to it a lot when I'm working or just when, you know, the information of the day has become too overwhelming. So I do think, you know, as consumers, we do seek out that kind of hypnotic or numbing effect a little bit because we need it. <laughs> it's, I mean, but, it's but, a crazy world out there. People have done that with with serious artistic intent. I mean, I'm thinking of, of Eno's music for airports or, or ambient right. sounds, you know, music that goes back 40 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, this is not a new idea to, <laughs> to make something that's soothing or pleasant. But I do think, I always think about Eno's definition of ambient music being as ignorable as it is interesting so you can either pay attention to it or you and find something interesting or you can ignore it in the background and i think too much today has missed the making it interesting part (laughs) so it's like ignorable but the moment that you focus on it too much there's there's nothing there Yes, we need we need the interest. Barata needs the things. <laughs> Barata without the things is purely ambient. <laughs> <laughs> it needs the I don't know fried sweetbreads on the side or some artisanal vegetables. <laughs> it's like you can't you can't just have the the ambience. You need something that provokes some thought as well. Kyle, thank you, and thank you for 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 poking at this beast in such an interesting. <laughs> In a revelatory way. Thank you so much. It was a fun conversation. Kyle Chaker is author of Filter World, How Algorithms Flattened Culture. Uh, if you're intrigued, there was a, an excerpt published recently uh, on The Guardian. We'll, we'll pop a link up to that. It might whet your appetite on the Blueprint page at the Radio National website. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.